Hello, this is Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. Here's a great catechetical question. How many sons does the Virgin Mary have? The answer, two. You want to learn more? Hang on and listen to this edition of Oral Valley Catholic. As Catholics, we're familiar with the understanding that the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, that Jesus doesn't drop into this planet out of nowhere, that the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, comes to us through the Jewish people, and that he's understood in the light of Jewish prophecy and the entirety of the Old Testament. The New Testament does not supplant, replace, or get rid of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Messiah and fulfills the Old Testament. And so, one of the things we're going to talk about today in Oral Valley Catholic is, again, typology. How is it that we understand who Jesus is? Jesus, in one understanding of who he is, is the new Joseph. Do you remember that Joseph saved his people? He was one of the 12 sons of uh, the patriarch Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Joseph was one of the 12 sons. And then in the time of famine, the rest of the family left the promised land to go down into Egypt where Joseph provided for them. He was at the right hand of Pharaoh and he took care of, of his own. Well, if Jesus is the new Joseph, and the, the parallels between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus are striking. If he's the new Joseph, then the virgin mother, Mary, is the new Rachel, who is Joseph's um, mom. And so without hermeneutics, and I've talked about them before, ways of understanding, scripture's just one darn thing after another. And what you get to is what some denominational Christians get to, which is just strip quoting um, pieces of scripture completely out of context. As a result, you come up with some pretty aberrant understandings of Christ, the church, and salvation. So today I'm going to readdress a theological idea that I brought up briefly, but I think based on conversations with parishioners, maybe not completely understood. And this concept is the concept of the hermeneutic. It actually comes out of theology and philosophy, but you see it now being adopted in sociology and, and the social sciences. The definition of a hermeneutic is that is the study of the principles of interpretation. It's a method or a principle of interpretation. And so think of a, of, a, of a principle of interpretation. We know that at the Last Supper, we Catholics, that Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Some Christians think it's an ordinance or symbolic. What we Catholics say, and we have a new document on it from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, is that when Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, 
We call it the real presence. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When God says, bread is his body, it's his body. When God says, wine is his blood, it's his blood. God can make things by simply saying it. That's why Jesus is the word of God. We call it the real presence. That phrase, real presence, isn't found in scripture. It's a hermeneutic. It's how we understand what Jesus did at the Last Supper and how it fulfills the story of the man in the Old Testament. And we'll talk about this again when we, when we begin talking about the, the bishop's new document on the Eucharist. But you're right, the real presence, that phrase is not found in Scripture. But what Jesus was saying at the Last Supper is, this is how Jesus is really present amongst his church. Another example of a hermeneutic is the most holy trinity. God is one God, three divine persons. God is this dynamic perichoresis in the Eastern Church, this dynamic dance that has existed forever, that the second person of that trinity is the divine son, Jesus. The first person's the father, the third person, these are all human hermeneutics of how we talk about God, is the Holy Spirit, which is the love shared between Father and Son. And so where is this in Scripture? Well, just look at the baptism of Jesus wherever it's recounted. A, the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son on whom my favor rests. The Spirit comes down like a dove, and the Son is in the water being baptized. There's the voice, there's the spirit, there's the son. That's the Trinity. Why isn't it three gods? We have a hermeneutic, a principle of interpretation that comes to us from the Nicene councils and all the councils of the church. It's one of the most ancient beliefs in the church that God is one God, three divine persons. But the hermeneutic, the word Trinity, this is how we interpret. This is our method of interpretation. When we see that, we know we're talking about one God, not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament or three gods that are in substantial moral agreement. That is not Christianity. The word Trinity is not found in Scripture. It's a hermeneutic. I've expressed the same thing last week, if you want to listen to it again, is about the Immaculate Conception the phrase immaculate conception is not found in scripture, but Mary as the new Eve is clearly the corollary to Jesus who is referred to by as St. Paul as uh, the second Adam. And remember last week we talked about the first Adam comes in a natural body, the second in the spirit, the first Adam brings sin into the world, the second Adam recreates humanity, in the spirit. This is in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and 1 Corinthians. And again, I refer you to my podcast on the Immaculate Conception. Or if you want to flip back to uh, August, uh, watch the one on the Assumption, because the words Immaculate Conception and Assumption are not found in Scripture. The reality of that theological understanding is clearly what Scripture teaches that Mary is the new Eve. And like Eve was was conceived without sin, made by God without sin, so is Mary. It is the assumption 
that the Ark of the Covenant marries the Ark of the Covenant, which really is the gospel today, that in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19, the, hev- the heavens parted, and I saw the Ark of the Covenant. That's then they improvidently put the breaker right there into chapter 12, verse 1. A woman clothed in the sun and crowned with 12 stars. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And what? She's given birth. Of course, it's Mary. But it's also the church. It's the way that Scripture talks to us about supernatural realities. Because, my friends, you don't get very far in Christianity without the supernatural. When the Holy Spirit comes, this is not a natural force. This is God, the third person of the Trinity. And so, as we enter into talking about Mary as the new Rachel, the intercessor for the people of God, just as Rachel was the intercessor for the people of Israel, Mary is the intercessor for the new Israel, uh, the, the church, those baptized into Christ who are grafted, as St. Paul says, like a wild shoot onto a domestic olive tree. So let's set the stage a little bit by recounting um, the Gospels for today, the Scriptures for today. The first reading for the fourth Sunday of Advent is from Micah. We don't get a lot of readings from Micah, but Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, you Bethlehem Ephrathah, too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient times. And so we know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We sing little town, oh little town of Bethlehem every Christmas. But why does the word Aphrathah appear there? And why is it recounted like that uh, in, in Matthew's gospel? Um, and right now we're in Luke, but uh, the, this, is, this idea of Mary's new Rachel is bigger than just the gospel of Luke. Well, the reason Bethlehem and Ephrathah are linked is because they're right next to each other. And this comes from Genesis 35, chapter, uh, verses 16 to 20. And it's about the death of Rachel. And we'll talk about Rachel more in a minute, but here's what it says. And it's about Jacob and his, first, his second wife, Rachel, and they're journeying. And Rachel is giving birth. Here's what it says. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel was in childbirth, and she had a hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing her, for she had died, she named him Benanoni, which means son of my sorrows. But his father called him Ben-Hamin, son of my right hand, my strength. And so it was Rachel's last son, Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this very day. That's Genesis chapter 35. And so Let's keep that story about the death of Rachel, her burial next to Bethlehem, 
as we talk about uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent. So the gospel is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but there is something that I want to point out about the gospel, and it's something that we're all familiar with, a story. It's the visitation to Elizabeth. So Mary finds out that she's going to bear a son, and the angel also tells her in Luke chapter 1 that her cousin, an older cousin Elizabeth, is also in her sixth month of pregnancy. Mary says, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. And then she makes haste to go see her, um, go see her cousin Elizabeth. And we all remember the story, and I've talked about it in other podcasts. Mary goes to see Elizabeth. The baby leaps for uh, joy in her womb, and Elizabeth cries out, just like in the, the podcast about the Assumption, which goes back to King David who cries out, and the crowd cries out. But Elizabeth cries out, "'Blessed are you among women.'" Who is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And that word Lord could mean king, it could mean God, Adonai. It, it can be translated both ways. But that first part, blessed are you among women. Because in Luke chapter 11, it talks about what true blessedness is. So Jesus is teaching, and while he was speaking, it says, a woman from the crowd called out and said to him, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breasts at which you nursed, which is actually a takeoff of what Elizabeth said. And you remember what Jesus said. He he replied, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Mary's not blessed because she's Jesus' mom. Mary is blessed because from the beginning of her conception, she listened to the word of God. And so this blessed woman, How is she the new Rachel? How is Rachel an intercessor for Israel? How is Mary our intercessor? So hang on, because we're going to talk about the Old Testament and how it's a type of Mary. Let's go back to the Old Testament. We're talking about Joseph and his 12 sons. Do you remember the story of Joseph? He wants to get married, so he has to go back to his dad, Isaac's people, and there he's going to find a wife. He meets Rachel at the well, love at first sight, wants to marry her. He talks to her dad, sure, I'll give her as your bride, but you have to work for me for seven years, at the end of which I will give you Rachel. So seven years passes. He has a wedding. He gets married to this woman, veiled, she can't see his face, On the wedding night, who is it? It's Rachel's older sister, Leah, who, according to the scriptures, has nice eyes. But it's not the one he wanted to marry. So father-in-law says, it's not our custom to let you marry the the little sister. You ought to marry the first sister uh, first. But I'll still let you have Rachel as your wife if you work for me for seven more years. And so that's the story of how Rachel becomes Jacob's wife. So... By the end of Jacob's life, he has 12 sons by two wives and two concubines. Sounds like a modern family, doesn't it? Here's the birth order. Leah gives birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Then Rachel uses her concubine, Bilhah, to give Jacob two more kids, Dan and Naphtali. Leah fights fire with fire, 
She uses Zilpah to give Jacob two more sons, Gad and Asher. Then Leah pitches in with two more, Issachar and Zebulun. There at the very end, Rachel finally is blessed with children of her womb, Joseph and Benjamin. So now think about this. Jacob has two wives. The rest are concubines. Judah, the father of all the Jews, is the son of Leah, the first, no, his first wife. Rachel has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Joseph, I think most people remember the story of Joseph and his multicolored dream coat. They, uh, at least they saw the Donny Osmond show, right? But Benjamin's the last. He's the beloved. And so after the Babylonian exile, when the, the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament is put together, this is what it would look like. Leah's son by Jacob, the firstborn, um, uh, or rather the first wife, is Judah. It's where the Jews come from. Two tribes survive, basically, um, the exportation of Jews to Babylon. Judah and Benjamin. For instance, St. Paul is a Benjamite. All the other ten sons are the ones lost in the Assyrian invasion. And so if you Think about um, the story of Israel, how a first century Jew might understand it, is Jacob has still surviving descendants from the Judahites and the Benjamites. The rest have all been taken off um, to, um, to, to Assyria. When Jesus comes, he's born in Judah territory, that's Bethlehem Ephratha, but he preaches in Galilee, where these other 10 tribes were. So now you have the geology of the, whole, of the Holy Land. But now think about this in regard to that eldest son of the beloved wife, Rachel, how Jesus is a Judahoy, a Judahite, but his story is the story of Joseph, the son of Rachel. So in a way, Jesus embodies the whole story of both of these wives and all of the story of Israel. So let's go through that um, because Rachel has two sons. And the first part of this section of the podcast is going to focus on how Joseph, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, the story of Jesus are alike. Let me give you the comparisons. One, Joseph is the firstborn son of Rachel and the beloved son of Jacob. On the other side, Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary and the beloved son of God. On Joseph's side, he's sold to the Gentiles for 20 silver pieces. By Judah, his older brother, a league with the other 12. On the gospel side with Jesus, he's sold to the Gentiles, the chief priests and the Romans, for 30 pieces of silver. By Judas, same name as Judah, um, one of the 12 disciples. On the Joseph side, Joseph is condemned with two men. Remember, he's charged with adultery with um, Pharaoh's wife. Jesus is also crucified between two thieves. On Joseph's side, he's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh because remember, he can interpret dreams. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God because he is faithful to the end. In both cases, Joseph and Jesus, they're the savior of their people. The, 
the, his Joseph's 11 sons and his beloved little brother Benjamin have to come down to Egypt because they're starving up in Canaan land. Jesus uh, is the one who invites us into his kingdom and by whom we enter into his father's house. Joseph saves Israel and the Gentiles from death and feeds them by life-giving wheat. Jesus saves us from death by life-giving wheat that we call the real presence, the Eucharist. Joseph gives special honor to Benjamin, the youngest of the 12 at the big banquet he throws for his, um, for his 11 brothers because Benjamin is his special brother by his mom, Rachel. Jesus gives special honor to the beloved disciple at the Last Supper. Remember John chapter 13, verse 23, the beloved disciple, um, John rests his breast on Jesus's um, rest his head on Jesus's chest. In the last part, Joseph has revealed to his brothers who don't recognize him at first because he disguises himself. Jesus is revealed to his disciples who don't recognize him after the resurrection. So do you see the parallels that are uncanny between Joseph and Jesus? This is divine providence. This is the supernatural aspect of the story of Jesus making sense out of the Old Testament, not supplanting it, but fulfilling it. And at Christmas, we remember that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, because there's no room for the inn. This is the story of how Benjamin, the beloved son, uh, the youngest of Rachel, is born. Genesis chapter 35, verses 17 to 20. Then they departed from Bethel, but while they still had some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and suffered great distress. When her labor was most intense, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. With her last breath, she was at the point of death. She named him Benoni, which, but his father named him Benjamin. So Benoni means son of my sorrows. Benjamin, son of my strength. And so... Then the, the passage continues, Thus Rachel died, and she was buried on the road to Ephrath near Bethlehem. That's why in the New Testament it says Jesus is born in Benjamin, in Bethlehem, Ephrath, because it wants to give you the connection with Rachel. So it says at the end of uh, verse 20 in chapter 35, So Jacob set up a sacred pillar on her grave. And the same pillar marks Rachel's grave to this day. She wasn't buried with the other wives of Jacob. Her special place is next to Bethlehem. Why? Here's what the prophet Jeremiah says. When the people in, in Jerusalem were captured by the Babylonians in the 6th century, and they were taken into captivity, they were, they were probably taken by the road that goes right by Rachel's pillar. And so here's why Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 15 of his writing says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. And so in later Midrash, um, Jewish interpretation, Jewish hermeneutics essentially, especially in the lamentation Rabbah, it says, that um, Rachel was heard by God um, because she was a mom. 
um, they tell a story because it's stories are how we interpret. So the the rabbis would say, Abraham went to God and interceded for the people, but God wouldn't listen because the people didn't listen. Then Moses went to him, please help the people. God wouldn't listen because Israel didn't listen. But Rachel went, tugged at God's heartstrings, and that's why God brought them back from Babylon. And so it's Rachel weeping for her children that changes God's heart. So can anyone be more merciful than God? No, but Rachel's tears is somehow the imprint of God's son on that woman who was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. So remember I said, Mary had two sons. Well, you've probably already figured it out. The elder, who's like Joseph, is Jesus. The mom, who is like Rachel, loves and intercedes for her children. The beloved is you and me, baptized, and standing at the foot of the cross with our mother of sorrows. And so this type of how we understand ourselves as beloved and part of, of, um, of God's chosen people, that we take our birth order as the last, the Gentiles, the last of the last, because Israel's first, but the Benjamites are last. And that's where we fit in, in this story of Rachel and her firstborn son, Jesus, the new Joseph. But this is the good news. And uh, there's lots of good news. The book of Deuteronomy, the last book, remember Genesis tells the story of Rachel's death. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, tells about Moses' death in chapter 33. Before he dies, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses gives a blessing to the children of Jacob. And he goes tribe by tribe. And so chapter 33, verse one starts out, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the Israelites before he died. And he goes through and he blesses everybody until he gets to the last one, verse 12, and he says this. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord, he abides in safety beside him. He shelters him all day long. The beloved abides at his breast. And so why does Jesus allow his beloved disciple to rest upon his breast, his chest at the Last Supper. Friends, that's the image of where you are in your relationship to our Lord. And so Rachel and Mary, they both have firstborns, Joseph and Jesus. They both have second sons, Benjamin. And in scripture, it's the beloved disciple, John, my friend, you're the beloved disciple. I am the beloved disciple. Um, Twelve sons, Benjamin was the youngest. Twelve apostles, John is the youngest. We're the new ones in the kingdom. And so Mary, our mother, weeps for us, our mother of sorrows, as we prepare for the great story of Christmas. Uh, Mary, the mother of the church, let's remember that that quote from Benjamin about Rachel weeping for her children, you know you've heard it because it's quoted in the Gospel of Matthew as Herod takes out his anger on Jesus on all the children under two years of age that are in that little village of Bethlehem. That's what we're here about the reference to, to Rachel as the angel guides the Holy Family down into Egypt 
Another connection to Joseph, isn't it? Joseph goes down into Egypt, so does Jesus and his family. You know, hermeneutics is how we read scripture. Hermeneutics is paying attention to the whole story. Because if you don't pay attention to the whole story, you don't understand Mary's role in the spiritual life. Mary is our exemplar. Mary as the one who is blessed because she listens uh, to the word of God. You're blessed when you follow your mom and you listen to the words of God. Mary prays for her children because she's her intercessor. I know all these Catholic moms and dads out there pray for their children. Remember Mary interceded for the people at the wedding of Cana. She interceded at the foot of the cross and you're right there with her, especially in these times when it's a little challenging. So why don't we take a moment and let's uh, pull all this together and uh, remember Mary as our intercessor because the hermeneutic is she is the new Rachel in the New Testament because Jesus is the new Joseph. And you, my friend, are the new Benjamin. Great story. Hang on. Oh, come let us adore you. Oh, come let us adore you. Friends, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, made so by the power of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural. Jesus saves us through his cross, death, and resurrection, the supernatural. If you don't believe in the supernatural, then I will say that you're not gonna get very far as a Christian. But to understand that the supernatural works through scripture in a, in a similar way that it works through the Eucharist and the other sacraments, and that scripture is giving us an image of our relationship to God and that Mary as our mother, as Rachel was the mother of the people of Israel. And so I really urge you to think about as you prepare for this last week of Christmas, um, a devotion to your mom. Uh, pray the rosary. Come to our Mother of Perpetual Help on Tuesday evenings. Mary is your intercessor. You know, I don't know where you are in regards to Marian apparitions like Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Fatima. But that the idea that Mary is bodily in heaven, still concerned about us, is to see Mary fundamentally as the new Rachel. So you can, I suppose, just spend this Christmas locked up in your house with all your stuff. But that's no way to live life. God calls us out of these tight little environments into his larger world. You have a mom and a dad you love, I hope, but isn't it powerful to think that you, your mom, your dad, your children, your spouse, that you're all the brothers, the beloved Benjamin of God. And the new Rachel, Mary is your mother. When we celebrate the incarnation, we celebrate God becoming man. But it wasn't the only time. He became man in your baptism. And you are the imprint of Christ. Think about that as you celebrate Christmas this year. This has been Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold preaching the gospel in Northwest Oral Valley and a couple neighborhoods in uh, Marana and to whoever else might listen. God bless you. Share this if you get a chance. Bye-bye.